0: Our first speaker tonight is Dr. Abner Chow. You can read the biographical information that's in your handout, also on the website of the Masters University. But he is the president of the Masters University. He also serves as an elder at Grace Community Church. He is married and they have four children, he and his wife Joanna, and we're so grateful that uh, the Lord has brought him here to us this weekend. So welcome Dr. Chow as he comes to speak to us. Well, it is so good to be with you all this evening. And as we open the Word of God together, and I think uh, we're talking about this topic on the New Testament's use of the Old, let me just open by saying this, that my message this evening is not exactly a sermon. Hopefully it will be, but it's more of what I call a Lerman. And you say, what in the world is a Lerman? Well, just like breakfast and lunch make brunch, And just like a tiger and a lion make a liger, well, what we have is a Lerman. And a Lerman is a lecture sermon. You might be at some point saying, man, this Abner Chow guy's kind of nerdy. What is he doing? Talking about this interconnectivity of the Bible and stuff. This is I thought he was supposed to be preaching. And you say, well, this is a Lerman. It's a lecture sermon. And some of you here might be saying, I like the nerdy. I want more nerdy. Why is it all of a sudden he's just trying to preach and convict us of our sin and such? This is a Lerman. It's a lecture sermon. This is going to be a mix of different things and essentially a Lerman allows me to do multiple things all at the same time and exempt me from all criticism. (laughs) But I think you understand my point in all of this and it is a joy to be with you all. And in light of this, let me begin this Lerman by saying these introductory matters, we are talking about not just the New Testament's use of the old, but truly the interconnectedness of Scripture. And you might be wondering, why? Out of all the topics to pick, why? Why do that? Who cares about that matter? And I understand this issue, and I also understand the great power that this has in our lives. Growing up, I learned the Bible and I love the people who taught me and I want to honor them. But sometimes when I was learning the Bible growing up, it confused me. There were many, many good lessons. But they all kind of seem random to me. One week in Sunday school, I learned about Noah's Ark. And then the next week, I learned about the Apostle Paul. And then the following week, I talked about the Exodus. And then there was David. And then we talked a little bit about Jesus and feeding the 5,000. And then there was another lesson on Paul. And then we talked about Solomon. And then there was judgment about Revelation. And then we talked about Genesis 1. And so I just thought that's how the Bible worked. First you had a flood, then Paul showed up, then Moses led an exodus, then David's there, and then the greater David shows up, and then his son shows up. That's David's son after Jesus comes, and then there's Paul on the Damascus road, and then the whole world ends, and then it's created. I just thought, wow, this is impossible. How could you ever master the Bible? I don't understand. It's all seemingly disconnected. It's all seemingly discombobulated and disjointed. A lot of individual great ideas, great stories, great lessons, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me. didn't make a lot of sense. And then I came to the college, the master's college, and I started to learn that actually the Bible does make sense. There is one story from Genesis to Revelation. Everything fits together like pieces of a puzzle and it's all compounding. It is all culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ and the depth of connectivity and the depth of consistency and the depth of all that is taking place really just grip me. Because the Bible made sense and it made more sense. It was sophisticated and rich and it could do a lot with a little. And because of this, during my senior year at the college, I was just studying these things. I just decided not to go home during spring break and just live in my dorm room on popcorn and ramen. And that's what I did. I just studied this topic because it was so glorious to understand that the Bible makes sense. And that it is so deep and so rich. And we should actually expect that the Bible is so interconnected. We should actually expect that the Bible is so rich. After all, God is the ultimate author of the scriptures, and He is a single author. And the prophets and apostles, they meditated on the scripture day and night. And if they meditated on the scripture day and night, what else do you expect them to talk about? They're gonna talk about the Bible. They're going to be Bible men. They're going to be people who are expositors in their own right, exegetes and theologians in their own right, and under the inspiration of the Spirit, they will expound the Scripture to their generation, even as they reveal the Scripture and put two and two together. And so we would expect, especially since this word, every word of it is inspired by God, deliberately chosen by God, that it carries that kind of richness, that kind of depth, and indeed it does. Let me just give you some quick examples of this. For instance, we might be familiar with what happens with our Lord in the wilderness, but think about this. Israel was in the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness for a while, 40 years, and they did not live off of bread alone. They lived off of every word that came from the mouth of God. And then, you have a guy named David. He also was in the wilderness. And in fact, if you remember... And if you study the book of 1 Samuel, you'll notice that his wilderness time is divided into three major parts. The first one concerns his lying and deception to get bread. The second is bracketed by his attempting to have an opportunity to kill Saul. And likewise, his third one, he also has an opportunity to kill Saul but does not do so. And so you have three times, three moments in the wilderness, three trials, shall we say, in the wilderness. The first one is about bread. Now, do you know of another individual later on who is also tempted or tried in the wilderness, and the first trial is about turning stones into bread? Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness is not just about how to deal with our temptation. Amen. It is true that that is the case. That must be true for the greater point to be true. But there is a correlation. There is a mission of Israel. There is a representative of David. There is a trial where the king earns his spurs, so to speak, where the king earns his credentials and proves that he's the legitimate king. But David was not that person. And Israel certainly was not that nation because they all failed in the wilderness. But our Lord does not fail. Our Lord does not fail. He has made and he has demonstrated and he has proven the true king has come. The true king has come. There is an epic nature to the scriptures when you see that they are interconnected. Here's another one. In John chapter one, it says frequently on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, on the next day. And then in John chapter two, it says, three days later, they had a wedding. And you just wonder, why does John divide things like that? Why does he just keep talking about on the next day, on the next day, on the next day? He doesn't have to say that. You know, Concision is good. You could just cut that out and we just keep going our merry way. Why does he give us a week culminating with the wedding? Well, John 1, the only clue that he gives us is, in the beginning, was the Word, which is an allusion to the book of Genesis. So let me ask you a question. Is there anything in the book of Genesis, particularly, you know, around Genesis 1 or 2, about a week, that ends with people getting married? You say, the whole chapter. That's the whole point. Yes. And what does that demonstrate? if Jesus is the one leading that week, and if Jesus is the one performing the marriage, and the one who did that originally was God, then Jesus is God. Even a date can tell you, even dating chronology structure can tell you that Jesus is God, according to the Bible. And if you want to get even deeper than that, there's a passage in Mark, Mark 6, where there's the feeding of the 5,000. We're so familiar with it, and it says in Mark 6 particularly that Jesus had them sit and recline on the green grass. Now, here's my question for you. Why is the grass green? And you say, because it was. Yes, I agree. I totally agree. The, the hills were green. Amen and Amen. But why does Mark have to mention that they're green? He doesn't really use colors in his book. So why does he talk about green grass? Think about a passage where it says, he makes me lie down on green pastures. What passage is that? Psalm 23, very good. And how does Psalm 23 begin? Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. And you say, is that connected to Mark? You know what's interesting? Right before the feeding of the 5,000, it says this, that Jesus, our Lord, had compassion on them because he saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. Now, let's put two and two together. Who is the shepherd of Psalm 23? Yahweh is my shepherd. What is Mark saying? Jesus is that shepherd. Let's do a little bit of math, A, B, B, C, C, A. You know how that works. If Yahweh is the shepherd and the shepherd is Jesus, then Jesus is Yahweh. And that's part of Mark's point. Now, think about this. We just proved the deity of Christ with a color. Green should be everybody's favorite color. All that to say is every word, every phrase of scripture, it matters, whether that be a date or a color, or a place like the wilderness, it all Matters, and part of how you see that it matters, it's not always, but it's considerable, is seeing how the Bible connects itself, how the Bible fits itself together. That's part of the profundity of Scripture, and it demonstrates and illustrates what we have known to be true and what the Scripture attests to, namely, that every word is inspired and every word should be studied because it is so richly bound up in the unity of the Word of God. And I understand that you might say, wow, that's great. How can I do that? Well, sometimes, sometimes these matters of learning the interconnectivity of Scripture, they're best caught rather than taught. And catching them rather than just purely teaching them theoretically is good because then there's also edification as we go through a text. And so to that end, what we are going to be doing this weekend in the next several messages is seeing one passage, Leviticus 18.5, and the ripple effect it has throughout all the Bible. And at this point, when I say Leviticus 18.5, you say, what? Okay, first, Chow, you're already talking about this nerdy subject of the connectivity of the Bible, and I kind of buy that this might actually be edifying and practical. And then, after you get me off of the cliff of there, now we're in this book of Leviticus okay, you got some explaining to do. And I agree. And that's why we need this session. That's why we need our time together, because we need to see how edifying it is. And all of it begins with this simple truth. And it is so convicting. It is so convicting. And that is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. This is a major topic in scripture. This is the summation of God in some ways, of his separateness, of his transcendence, of his perfection and purity and dedication to being totally other in all of its exactness and precision. No pagan God is holy. No pagan God asserts that he is holy, and no immoral man would ever fabricate the doctrine of holiness You would never come up with an idea that God is holy when you want to justify your sin. And people say, oh, but people might want to justify how a society would get together and be together and be united and have common thriving and common good. You still even then wouldn't come up with the term and the idea of holiness. You can come up with a lot of things in morality, but you never come up with a God who is holy. This is a doctrine that demonstrates the godness of God that is untouchable by man and unfabricated by men. This is who he is. It is so lofty and so overwhelming, often it is hard for us to grasp. It is hard for us to take it seriously, even though we take a lot of things seriously. We take a lot of things seriously. For example, I one time remember in high school, I was in chemistry class and chemistry lab and We had a really fun teacher, and he came up to all of us in the class, and he said, you're going to follow my instructions exactly every step of the way. If you even do one thing wrong, you will die. And we're all sitting there like, and he looked around, and he said, many of you will. And we were just so terrified. I mean, we read that manual. We read those instructions. We had second by second understanding. You hold the beaker this way. You put it under the fume hood that way. You press this button right now. You don't delay. And we were just in total panic because we understood you have to take things seriously. There's a precise standard. There's a specific and particular way this must be done. And if you violate it, you die. We understand that things should be taken seriously. But yet we struggle to take God seriously. And this text that we are in in this Leviticus 18:5. It's a moment for us to be confronted with what it means that God is holy and how serious that is. And so yes, we're going to talk about the interconnectivity of scripture and yes, we're going to talk about the richness of scripture but let's not lose the main thing. This is about the holiness of God, which convicts deep into our hearts, our souls, and our lives. And we never, we never want to lose that. And so there needs to be a little bit of context because Leviticus, probably for most of us here, is a book that we struggle with. I think about when people try to read the Bible in a year. They have the best of intentions, January 1, Genesis 1. It's a great start, and they move, and Genesis is good. And then they get into Exodus. Oh, yeah, 10 plagues, good. And then about February, March, you hit Leviticus. And then people are like, I can't wait till next year when I can restart reading the Bible again, and I'll actually fulfill my my, uh, obligation, my commitment there, my resolution. I get it, I get it. Leviticus can be tough to people, and so amongst our many goals here of thinking about God's holiness, of thinking about the interconnectivity of Scripture, I want to help you to love this book of Leviticus. I want you to not be intimidated by it, but to learn how it works, and not just to learn how it works, but to actually look forward to having your devotions in this book, and it would change your life, because this book is powerful in that it describes the holiness of God, Leviticus 18.5 is a summary of that holiness, but the whole book is an exhibition of holiness, and it's an exhibition of holiness in a very hands-on way. This is one of the reasons why we are often confused by the nature of Leviticus, because Leviticus is not just meant to be declared amen and amen, and it's meant to be understood amen and amen, but it is even a hands-on experience. When you put your hands on the animal that you kill, and you have to kill that animal, and do specific things that helps you learn in a very hands-on way the nature of God's holiness sometimes you just have to visualize this a little bit and when you do then you start to understand holiness and you say but chow Leviticus is crazy confusing all of those regulations and such no it's not it's not crazy let me give you a simple example that we're all familiar with. Sometimes they have these things called a wave offering. You go, what in the world is a wave offering? It's an offering that you wave. Is that really that crazy? And you say, but chow, I don't get it. You have to eat, you know, the food that's been sacrificed, and I can't ever keep track of what is being killed and, and butchered up and given to people. Okay. The wave offering is often a leg or a thigh. You say, that's so confusing. No, it's not. What do you order at Kentucky Fried Chicken? A leg or a thigh. That's what people eat. That's why it's there. This isn't as crazy as you think about it. You just have to think about it. If you're gonna eat some food, what kind of food do you people normally eat? And that's part of the offering. It makes sense. You just have to think visually. You just have to think demonstrably. You just have to think practically. And Leviticus is one of those books that just lays out all the details as both a reminder of a hands-on demonstration as well as God really does care about every detail. And so in light of that, let me just give you kind of an overview up to the point of Leviticus 18. Leviticus 1 through 10, it teaches a very simple lesson. It's a very powerful lesson, though. And it's this. The way you become holy must be holy. The way you become holy must be holy. Every offering offered to God, not just for sacrifice or sacrifice for sin, that is, but even for worship, that must be done a specific way. God does not tolerate you nor the priests to do worship in any which way people please. You say, but wait, I have a good goal, and that's to honor God. That's to be forgiven of sin. That's to honor and worship Him. Shouldn't He just accept whatever I do? Intent doesn't work here. You have to do it God's way. The means and the end, they matter. And God reminds us of this because the way you become holy must be holy to the point where it all culminates in Leviticus 10, and you're probably very familiar with this passage with Nadab and Abihu, and they try to offer strange fire, just a different combination of incense. That's all that it is. It's just a different ratio of the mixture, and they become the sacrifice. They become the sacrifice. They thought they could offer incense. They thought they could offer fire to God, and the fire consumed them. Because if you don't offer the right sacrifice, you're the sacrifice. And what is the lesson? The way you become holy has to be holy. That's how exact God's holiness is. Sometimes people wonder, why is there only one way of salvation? Why can't it just be if you want to be a good person or you want to please God? You can just do whatever you want to get there as long as we all are going in the same direction. That doesn't work because our God is a holy God. And the way you become holy must be holy. Everything has to be holy. And then in Leviticus 11 through 15, you have these laws about clean and unclean and people get very, very puzzled by this. And and why is it even called clean and unclean? Well, think of it this way. Just use the terms clean and unclean. This is how I describe it to my college students. I say, let's pretend you had a significant other, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and they were unclean. Why? Because they didn't shower for a semester. You say, yep, definitely unclean. Would you just go and give them a big, big hug? No. No. Now, have they sinned? Now, this is where my college students may go wrong. They say, yes. And I said, no, 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 no. I mean, maybe, you know, like not considerate of others in the dorms and violating our health and safety code. Yeah, like those are all true, but it's not an objective sin. There's no text in the Bible that says thou shalt shower every morning. It doesn't say that. So they've lived in the gray area, but they have actually distanced themselves from each other. And that's What is clean and unclean? Clean and unclean refers to those areas of life which technically are in the gray. They're not exactly objectively, morally wrong, but they still matter to God. And God's point in this is, my holiness still reigns over things that are gray. Not just things black and white, things that are gray. And it's in the public life, in the most joyous times of life, whether that be birth, or in the most grievous times of life, like death. It's in the most private moments of life. That's what Leviticus 11.15 says. And God says, it doesn't matter if you think it's optional. It doesn't matter if you think it can go either way. Maybe it can, but still, you have to make a choice for holiness in those things too. You don't get a pass just because it's not inherently wrong. God's holiness is over the black and the white, even as is it over the gray. And you just start thinking, man, this holiness is on the area of worship. This holiness is in the area of sanctification. This area is over what is objectively sinful. This area is over what is objectively not even not sinful. And it's over so many things. How can anyone stand? Well, that's why there's Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, Leviticus 16. And it's a reset button. It resets the entire system of the Levitical system. That's what the Day of Atonement does, so that people can start again. And on the one hand, you might say, well, good. I mean, you need that. Otherwise, you're in big trouble. Absolutely. But think about this with me, brothers and sisters. If you need to restart a system, that might not be good. That may be indicative that it's a problem. Yes? IT. When you call them, say, my computer's having a problem. What do they tell you to do? Did you restart it? They don't say that to you unless there's a problem. The Levitical system already has a problem. And then you know it's a problem. People say, well, at least you got it reset and it works. But if you have to do it over and over and over again, then maybe you need a new computer. You go to IT and you say, did you restart your computer? Yes. Okay, did it work? Yes. But why are you here then? Because it doesn't work anymore. Well, I mean, computers, you know, they just take a while to work. No, 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 that was four minutes ago. I restarted it four minutes ago and now it doesn't work again. Okay, just restart it again and let's try it again. Four minutes later, it doesn't work. If you have to restart your computer every four minutes, it's time to get a new computer. And here, the built-in reset system is every year. It comes with a problem. It comes with the need for reset every year. Every Israelite would be thinking, wait, you mean it comes kind of broken? Yeah, except it's actually perfect because it's telling you, just like one would need a new computer, you need a new system. You need a new system. This is not meant to be the final system. This is meant to push you to a new, another system, a 2.0 system, or shall we say even the real system that it's all pointing to. And speaking of pointing, that's why in Leviticus 17, it talks about the sanctity of the blood, because there are things that God wants us to remember that are holy unto him, that can, that are symbols of salvation, and we need to care about them holiness and how you become holy holiness in the gray area holiness pointing to the ultimate holiness of salvation and everything and you say okay well what's left to discuss in holiness your personal life your personal life and that's leviticus 18 and following leviticus 18 has many many commands about personal morality about how you treat other people about sexual morality and Leviticus 20 is the companion chapter to this. And Leviticus 20 is really clear and really easy to remember. Anytime you do something wrong and anytime you violate something said in Leviticus 18, guess what happens to you in Leviticus 20? You die. You die. It just, that's what Leviticus 20 says. If you do this, you're dead. If you do this, you die. If you do this, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead. You die, you die, you shall die, you shall die. That's what it says over and over and over again. And any Israelite reading this, because now it gets really personal, because you're not just dealing with worship, which may happen on occasion, or gray areas in your private life. This is dealing with your entire personal living. I say, is that really fair? Is that really right? God says, yes, it is. And so in the opening part of Leviticus 18, God reminds Israel This is my law. This is my holiness. This is the nature of holiness. You've got to walk in my ways. I am Yahweh, not just any other God. I'm Yahweh, the one true God that has delivered you. And I'm a holy God. You've got to remember this. And having distilled all of that out in one verse, Leviticus 18, verse five, God summarizes it all down and not only gives a summary of the standard, but how serious it is so that Israel will understand, yes, It is right. It's right. It's fair that God has such a holy standard because this, in essence, is the nature of that standard. And so as we begin with Leviticus 18, verse 5, let me just give you four realities of God's holiness. Four realities of God's holiness, and it should truly convict us. And in fact, if we're really going to be technical, I'm actually, and so you can be comforted, I'm only going to cover verse 5b, which a man will do them, and he will live by them. That is the verse that we're covering in Leviticus 18, verse 5. Here's the first of four realities of holiness. You want to understand God's holy standard? Here's the first thing. It's perfect. It's perfect. Let's look at that word, which a man will do them. What is this referring to in context? What is he talking about? That is Moses. Well, in context, earlier in that very verse, it says, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments. Let's think about that then. What are these statutes and what are these judgments? Overall, putting the two together, that's the totality of the law. And it's a reminder, if you break one part of the law, you break what? All of the law. That's perfection. That's perfection, but it's not just the only one. You see, let's dig into this word statutes. What is a statute, at least in Hebrew? What does that mean? The fundamental idea of the word statute is a boundary. It's a line. It's the line between good and evil, acceptable and not acceptable. It is, therefore, in judicial law, the principle by which any law is made. The underlying truth, the underlying theology, the underlying reasoning and motivation that drives any kind of application. And this is important because God doesn't just have random laws. God has laws that are based upon his character. God has laws that are based upon his word. God has laws that are based upon his truth. And Moses' point here is this, that the entire point of the law was to instruct you in those boundaries, the very reasons, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And those reasons about God's character and theology and truth, they aren't just things that you do. They're things that you believe. They're things that you have in your heart. They're things that are motivations. That's what the law also has. Not just the do's and don'ts and the hands-on kind of stuff, but things that go all the way to your heart. That's why in Jeremiah chapter seven, God said to Israel, and it's crazy to think about this. He said, I never gave you laws to do in the wilderness. And you're singing, excuse me, I think we got like 660 of them that we have to do. And he said, no, I always gave you things about your heart. Here's another question that God has, Zechariah chapter 7. He says this, when you fast, Israel, did you fast for me? You can go through all the motions, but you still violate God's law. Why? Because part of God's law wasn't just doing stuff, but doing stuff for the right reasons. And those right reasons are about your heart, your heart. That's why in Isaiah chapter one, verse 11, God says this, stop, stop sacrificing to me. You say, wait a minute, he's telling them to break the law. No, he's just telling them to be real with what they were already doing. He says, all that you're doing is having trampling in my courts because you're offering sacrifices with the wrong what? Heart, heart. So you're just sinning all the time. That's all that's taking place. If you think that you can just do certain things and you're okay, or that the Old Testament law just required Israel to do certain things and they would be okay, you have far too low of a standard. There were statutes and judgments. And those statutes were not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, the principle behind it, how your heart was supposed to be thinking through it, the motivations that were supposed to be driving everything, the rationale that was supposed to be undergirding everything, that was supposed to be right too. And just think about in sanctification, brothers and sisters, sometimes in sanctification in our own lives, we just think God's happy if I just do the checklist. I just go to church, pray a prayer, read my Bible, have good devotions, and the list can go on and on and on. And you never think about the matter of your own heart in it all. You know what God says? You didn't keep a thing. You didn't keep a thing. Because this standard has never been just the external. Not even with Israel was it that way. That's why he didn't just have judgments, he had statutes and judgments. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about the principles. But that's not the only thing that there is. Yes, there are statutes, but there were also judgments that were referred to. And you say, what's this judgment business? Is that talking about wrath? Is that talking about punishment? No, you can also use the word judgments about a verdict. Hey, I I judged that that was pretty good. You have contests where there are things that are judged. And so these judgments are specific verdict, specific decisions. They are case law. They are decisions and demonstrations and how things and how theology should be applied in particular situations. And there is a lot of case law in the Old Testament. Like I mentioned, over 600 laws. And you say, I can't keep track of it. Well, join the club. Israel couldn't either. That's their whole history. They couldn't couldn't keep track of it. So many situations. And here's what you have to think. And here's what it reminds us of. God doesn't just want us to understand the heart of the law. He wants perfect execution of it every single time, in every single circumstance. You say, well, one principle could apply to so many different things in my life. Yes, it can. Wow. And then notice... The which doesn't just refer to a statute and a judgment, but it's what? Statutes, plural, and judgments, plural, yes? Even if you could do one really well, just one principle in your life and you nailed it in every part of your life, there's like 659 more to do. Just the same way. And it's a reminder. God wants all of you, inside, outside, statutes, judgments, heart, every single decision, heart, every single situation of your life to be exactly conformed to every single thing and every single truth he has revealed. On the one hand, it's a reminder of how exacting sanctification is. And on the other hand, if you feel like, That's overwhelming. Yes. How could anyone truly in and of themselves fulfill it on their own? That's the point. That's the nature of holiness. It is truly perfect. It is truly perfect. Here's a second one. It's truly personal as well. It's personal. Notice what it says. Which a man will do. Which a man will do. One man talking about an individual. It's talking about a person. And holiness, fundamentally as a starting point, fundamentally as a starting point, is personal. It is your responsibility. You cannot pass it off on anybody else, and no one can pass it off to you. And you also can't blame other people when things go wrong, when you do something erroneous or sin. Holiness is personal as a starting point. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins will die. It's personal. It's on you. And you might say, but what about in Exodus 20, where it says that the sins of the fathers pass on to the children? Sure, the effects of God's judgment against the fathers will spill over to the children. And of course, that will particularly happen when the children are doing the same thing that the fathers did. That's true too, but still, The soul that sins will die. And you say, wait a minute, but what about substitutionary atonement? Jesus took my place. That still presumes that you are a sinner. That still presumes personal responsibility and personal culpability for holiness and for sin. If you could just blame anybody, if you could just pass on your sin, willy-nilly, from the very beginning, from the absolute starting point, then you don't have to be guilty to begin with. And if you're not guilty to begin with, why in the world does anybody need a substitute for you? This only works, substitutionary atonement, is that is. And the gospel only works if each one of us is guilty for our own sin. What do we often do as we preach the gospel? What is step one? Even as we go through the book of Romans, everyone is a sinner. We know that. We know that. It's personal. And on the one hand, in our sanctification, we need to be very careful. We cannot say, "Oh, how do I know I have a holy life because my friends are all holy? Because I hang out at a holy place. Because I'm associated with holiness. Because I go to a holy Bible study. That doesn't count. Are you holy? And when we sin, how often are we like Adam, and we blame, we shift? Oh, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Oh, it was just a rough day. And we understand the patience and the mercy and all these kinds of things. But brothers and sisters, God's standard is this. It's your fault. You have to own it. And that should remind us of the weightiness of God's standard. That if you can't keep it perfectly heart and hands, you can't keep it perfectly principle and perfect practice and execution. It's on you. It's on you. That is the weighty holiness of God. Here's the third one. God's holiness and his holy standard is performative. It is performative. Notice, which a man will do them. Notice that word do. In Hebrew, the word do means to do. Profound, but it is profound. Profound because it's a word of action, not intention. It's a word of achievement and accomplishment, not just hope and aspiration. What we are talking about doing here is, of course, everything that the law stipulates, whether that be the execution of action in every single individual situation, every single contingency, that's true. You might say, but you also mentioned that the statutes of the law were supposed to inform your heart so that you knew the principles and you have the right motivations. Yes, you have to do those things as well. So it's both internal and external, but do not get me wrong, brothers and sisters. You've got to do them. In our culture today, what we have is, you know, the culture of good intentions, the culture of participation trophies. You get a, somebody a bad gift, what do they say? Well, it was a good thought. That's the thought that counts. Really? I still got a bad gift. <laughs> Be merciful, I agree, but we have a mentality. It's just a thought. It's just the intent. Somebody, a student or a worker does shoddy work. Well, at least they tried. That's good. I'm glad that we got to give them an A for effort. Really? You give them an A for effort? And then in sports... Hey, you guys lost. You've never won. Have a trophy. Why? Because you showed up. You enabled the winners to win. Have a trophy. And we may laugh. We may laugh absurdity of a lot of these statements. And we, of course, again, we want to be gracious and we want to be merciful and we want to be patient and we want to be kind. But all these things can dull our sense of the holiness of God. Sanctification, think about this brothers and sisters and, and it's all of us together here. How often do we say, I'm just struggling against sin? Did you actually deal with it? No, but, but, I'm, but it's the thought that counts, right? How often in our lives when we are combating sin, it's just a struggle and we never put it to death and our excuse is, well, at least I had a good intention. At least I tried. At least I get a participation trophy, don't I? And if we know it's ridiculous in society, what do you think it is before a holy God? God does not just say the man who intends to do them shall live by them. He tried to do them, shall live by them. He hoped to do them, shall live by them. This is do or don't. This is all or nothing. And is our God merciful and patient? Amen, he is. And now we know how much more so he is. Isn't that the case? but his standard is performative. And so now, this is the compounding standard. Every single person is absolutely responsible for a perfect execution of every principle, every practice, in every situation, all of the biblical truths, all of the biblical data, all of God's holiness, every single situation, every single second, and it doesn't count if you just try. You have to do it all the way, every single time. No exceptions. That is weighty. Yes, it is. And here's why it's particularly weighty, point four. Because God's standard isn't just personal are performative, are perfect. It's punitive. It's punitive. Notice the final part of the verse. He will live by them. He will live by them. Now, if you were reading this quickly, you might say, hey, does this suggest that somebody could actually do the law and then have life and have reward and have blessing? Sure, you could read it that way. But if you start to think, wait, this is the perfect standard. This is a personal standard. This is a performative standard. Then you realize he will live by them. It ain't happening. And actually the inverse is even more dangerous because if you don't, and if you're not capable of doing that perfect personal and performative standard, you won't what? You won't live. In other words, let's put it positively or negatively, you will die. That's the level of punitiveness. That's the level of penalty. That's the level of consequence. This is do or die. Do or die. And it must be perfect every single time, or you will die. On the one hand, on the one hand, no one of us can think, no one of us can think in our sanctification, well, sin, is it really that bad? I guess it's not that big of a deal. Uh, uh, It doesn't really matter. Brothers and sisters, our war against sin is a war of life and death. It is. And by that token, even more so. And by that token, even more so. For anyone trying to justify themselves on their own, they're playing an absolutely dangerous game. Because if you are not perfect, you will surely what? Die. That is what God laid out here. You want to know why God in two chapters will say, if you don't do this, you'll die. If you don't do this, you'll die. If you don't do this, you'll die. Do you want to know why in Israel's history, all of them what? Died. Because of this verse. Because of what it revealed. Because our God isn't a God who is just not serious about his standard. Sometimes people wonder, you know, hey, you have a high standard, but if you don't enforce it, is it really a high standard? It's like the professor, he's so nice. He has a rigorous standard, but he's so nice. You know, he pushes you hard. He has this great, great standard, but but he just gives everyone A's because it's the most convenient thing to do to just press one key on the keyboard as you're giving people a grade. It's so nice. Well, then if you have a standard that's never enforced, It's no standard. Here's what God tells his people. I enforce the standard. And I enforce it all the way. And I enforce it to the highest degree. You can never think that sin is no big deal. You can never think that sin is just light. And for anyone trying to justify themselves, not just to be sanctified, but to justify themselves. That's a fool's errand, especially this. Because notice the last phrase, he will live By them. By them. You engage in self-righteousness. You engage in legalism. You engage in moral, works-based justification. That's the standard you will have, and you can't get out of it. That is it. You will live by them, or you will die by them. And it only as we know, goes one way. And this is the law, and this is God's holiness. It puts us right in our rightful place as sinners. And so here we have God's holiness. And when we think about it, and when we really wrestle with it, we begin to understand the terrifying nature of God's perfection. You can't avoid it because it's personal. You can't just think that you have good intentions because it's performative. You can't just think I'm a pretty decent person because that's not good enough. It's perfect. This is true of our sanctification as we pursue Christ. How much more is it true of those sinners seeking to be justified? If you ever tried on your own to be right, it'll never work. And actually, for any Israelite, who is actually relatively paying attention to any of this, the question for us would be their question too. Who could do that? And you're absolutely right. And notice what the text says. The man who does them will live by what? Them. What's the problem of this standard? The problem isn't God's holiness. The problem is that it's about what? Any man. That's the problem. The problem is this, that we as just man, as Adam and sons of Adam in our fallenness and in our absolute depravity and in our innate sinfulness, we can never hit that standard. It's impossible. You cannot ever have the perfection on the personal level that's performative that would achieve this and avoid the punishment therein. Why? Because we are but men. That's all that we are. And so already anyone seeing this would know what I need is someone more than just a man. What I need is someone more than just a mere mortal. What I need is someone more than just a son of Adam. I need the final Adam. That's what I'm going to need in the end. I'm going to need the one who fulfills the sacrifices of the book of Leviticus. I'm going to need the one that can accomplish that end. That's what I'm going to need because there is no man by virtue of them being a man that could ever hit this standard. And with that, Leviticus 18 pushes us throughout history through the passages that we'll see. More on that later. But for now, for now, brothers and sisters, it is good for us to think about the holiness of God. It is good for us to be convicted. And it is good for us as we go through the scriptures. And yes, if you know Christ, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And we are so thankful for that. But as we are being sanctified, and as we still know, 1 Peter says it, and Paul says it, and James reminds us of this, our God is holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And we need to remember holiness is not a game. It's perfection. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your holiness. No man could make this up. No man could fabricate it and convict our hearts. Shine the spotlight of your perfections on our imperfections. And may we just be eager not to excuse sin, not to think we could pass it off to someone else, not to, not to think that we could procrastinate on it, but that we need to put it to death. And we don't just need to want to put it to death. It needs to be done because that is the nature of your holiness. Thank you thank you and make us even more thankful for the abundance of your mercy, for the abundance of your patience toward us. And thank you ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was no mere man. He is the God-man who took our place so that though we personally are culpable for all of our unholiness, worthy of death, because we could never live by them, he took our place and gave us his righteousness so that we could stand justified in him. May we love him all the more, even as we seek to be like him with all our heart. In your name we pray. Amen.